Welcome to the Tallyman Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. The votes are in, and Australia has decisively voted no to creating a First Nations voice to Parliament in the first constitutional referendum in 24 years. To discuss the results, I'm joined today by William Bowe from the Poll Bludger. Hello, William. Hello. The results are in, and as of the time of recording, 60.5% of the vote has gone to no, with 39.5% for yes. That's a very decisive victory for the no campaign. It's not one of the biggest losses in referendum history in Australia, but it's certainly like towards the top of the list. William, what did you find the most interesting thing about the results? I suppose that the results were pretty much like I was expecting them to look, but I had been led to doubt some of my own expectations as a result of uh, a lot of culture warring that was going on about how the result itself was going to look. In particular, the big one was how are Indigenous communities going to vote, which I think more than anything, this went down because people were persuaded that the Indigenous community was at best very deeply divided over the voice. And there were sort of faults on both sides in this respect because the Yes campaign, including Anthony Albanese, were a little bit overly keen to seize on quite out-of-date polling data saying 80% yes among Indigenous people. And the No campaign pushed very hard the other way and in particular by making two Aboriginal people the spokesperson for their campaign. I think that was the killer stroke of the No campaign that Warren Mundine and Cinder Price persuaded white Australia that at best the Indigenous communities were deeply divided over this. The numbers were in and they suggest that if not at 80%, then uh, at least in communities that were overwhelmingly Indigenous Yes, support wasn't too far off that. Certainly it was overwhelmingly favourable. I think there's two different questions there. There's there's just Indigenous people full stop around Australia. You know, there'd been that poll earlier this year that said 80% and then we had a poll this week or something that said high 50s. There's that, but then there's also we got the case from the No campaign saying, oh, well, that's fine for those elite Indigenous people in the cities, but the people in remote communities, this is out of touch for them. It's not relevant to them, blah, blah, blah. And those are the people that it's easy to identify how they voted, right? Like it's not particularly easy to identify how Aboriginal people in like big urban centres voted, but those remote communities are very clear. Yeah. Warren Monday in particular was saying this. Uh, He did an op-ed piece where he said exactly what you said just here. Last night, I was arguing with people on Twitter who were telling me the exact opposite, because now that we're able to point out to what the remote mobile teams came up with in the Northern Territory, now, you know, what they are polling is not exclusively Indigenous communities. They're sort of polling, you know, remote stations and, you know, various, you know, non-Indigenous people in the, the far-flung reaches of the Northern Territory for various reasons. But the vote, nonetheless, you know, most of those votes would have been from Indigenous people. The yes vote was 70 to 80% among the remote mobile teams. And last night I had no diehards telling me that, oh, well, it was Indigenous people who weren't in the remote communities who were voting no. Tawara Mundane had been suggesting the opposite. You know, that the polls were hyping up the yes vote among Indigenous people because remote communities are difficult to poll. But, you know, now the results are in. You look at somewhere like Palm Island, which is 91% Indigenous, 
the yes result was in the in the mid 70s so that was an interesting fact that a big part of the culture war around the referendum was around what the result was likely to be the truth of it wouldn't be known until voters you know till it was too late until voters had already voted and you know now while i do criticize the yes campaign for bandying that 80 percent figure around nonetheless it wasn't dramatically far off the mark. The other thing was the teal seats. The teal seats were very important because I think the narrative about the long-term prospects for the coalition with respect to all this is that Peter Dutton was setting himself up to win a battle by having the voice voted down. It's always easy to get people to vote no in referendums. That was a, a sort of tempting gimme for him to score a point against the government but that he'd regret doing that because it would solidify the sort of cultural divide that led the teal seat to rebel against the Liberal Party in the first place. As of the time of recording, I think there's 33 seats where Yes has recorded a majority. A couple of those are really close. Uh, Only 20 of those are Labor seats, but it also includes all seven teal urban seats, you know, the six that were won in 2022 plus Warringah, as well as the four green seats. So, When you look at those inner city seats that the coalition lost in 2022, six to the Teals, two to the Greens in Brisbane, you know, one to the Labor Party in Melbourne, they are within that group. Inner Metro Australia voted clearly yes, not an overwhelmingly, but they clear majority for yes in the majority of inner metro seats. The no campaign were putting about polling, saying that actually yes is tanking in the Teal seats. In particular, there was a poll from Curtin, or an alleged poll from Curtin, from Fair Australia, three weeks ago. This was the big front page splash in the Sunday Times in Perth that no was going to get absolutely crushed in Curtin. The numbers they provided were 60% no, 32% yes, I think, so with 8% undecided. This was massively reported in the Perth media. The no vote in Curtin, one of the teal seats, the only teal seat outside Sydney and Melbourne, was going to be in the 60s. But as you've just pointed out, it was a majority yes. So I'm going to do some sort of a reckoning about the various claims that were made about how the vote was likely to pan out and how it's looking the morning after. Yeah, it's a little bit hard sometimes, right, to judge who's, you know, bullshitting and who just isn't very good at doing this stuff and is just stuffing it up, you know, like, and the two are quite hard to distinguish and there's usually a bit of both, you know, how much is this people knowing that they're talking shit and how much of it is people thinking that they're telling the truth and just, you know, being a bit bad at this because there are just people who are just bad at this sort of work. Well, indeed. And, you know, it would be interesting to know which of those categories Fair Australia is in. I would criticise the media for being so credulous about the claims they were making, though. You know, there was no way that that was a front-page story. Any journalist should have had his bullshit meter on when, you know, the no campaigners, some of them known for disreputable tactics, came to them with that. And uh, yeah, I think that the claims of the no campaign in generally, not just in relation to polling, were received very non-credulously by the media. I don't think it decided the result, but I think that the Yes campaign has legitimate claims to make about the way that the referendum was covered. 
So if you look at these trends uh, in terms of how seats ranked and you compare it to other data sets, there's a reasonably strong correlation with two-party preferred at the last election, much stronger than we saw in 1999 with the Republic referendum. Like there's a lot less of strong liberal seats for yes or that kind of thing. That is partly because a lot of those strong liberal seats for yes in 1999 are no longer liberal seats. Like six have gone to the teals, uh, five have gone to Labor, one has gone to the Greens. Of those 17 seats that uh, were liberal yes seats in 1999, only five of them are still liberal seats. And actually a stronger correlation than the 2PP was between the Republic vote and the voice vote. Those two go together very strongly. And one of the things I found really fascinating is, so you take four metrics. You've got the 1998 2PP, the Republic yes vote, and then the 2022 2PP and the voice yes vote. The two referendum votes were very similar, at least in terms of the shape. Overall, the voice referendum was about 5 to 6% worse for yes than the Republic, but the overall relative shape of seats was very similar. The 2PP back in the 90s was quite different and it's converging and becoming similar to those referendum votes. Like the Republic referendum was kind of a preview of the direction that, not a total realignment, but there's been a slight realignment. Maybe we're not at the end of the realignment in Australian politics towards that. So I don't know. There's a lot more of them that vote no, but I feel like there's reason to be more worried about those teal seats than others. Oh, well, it's a fascinating observation, and you sort of took a lot of words out of my mouth in saying all of that just then, which is that we've had three referendum-style events over the last 25 years now, which have tapped into the new divide in politics, which is about you know social values as distinct from socioeconomic class which is the Republic referendum, the same-sex marriage survey, and now this. And I'd be fascinated to see what you've done, particularly in relation to the fact that you've mapped the referendum results onto the current boundaries. It's very rough, very rough. Oh, well, it's good enough, I'm sure. There was, notwithstanding the 25-year distance between these events, you know, a, a very close commonality. The culture war, broadly speaking, you had the same sides lining up on you know different issues you know the, both of these issues activate the same sorts of people to be yes or no in favor of one or the other and if you perform the same exercise on the same sex marriage survey you would get something similar there you would have a distinction i suppose that sort of multicultural communities were opposed to the same sex marriage survey nonetheless i'm sure there would be a strong correlation between you know electorate level votes for the same sex marriage survey and the voice so that you know cleavage within society between social conservatives slash patriots and you know cosmopolitans liberals you know the the, the global elites so to speak it has been there for some time now. What's changed is that that is increasingly sorting how people vote in terms of their party choice. That over the course of those 25 years, the, the underlying cleavage that has been represented over the course of those three votes is increasingly also a factor determining voting behaviour, whereas if you go back in the Republic, this is cutting across the partisan cleavage in society at the time. You know, it was 
affluent areas were voting yes. Back then, they were still liberal seats. Now they've ceased to be liberal seats. And, you know, the other side of that equation, Labor are having problems of their own in, you know, mining areas, in very socially conservative areas that, that line up against things like an Indigenous voice or, relatively speaking, a same-sex marriage servant. So I want to pull up something there, what you said, talking about Labor and Labor's support base, because the big difference between, I think, the Republic and definitely the voice on the one hand and um, same-sex marriage on the other was, particularly in Sydney, Melbourne, those multicultural outer suburban electorates were the strongest no voters. And like same-sex marriage also just got a higher vote overall, but probably the strongest seats for all three are the same, but the seats that were on the other side of the equation are a bit different. What we saw last night was if you think of Labor as having two core parts of their base defined very broadly, you know, the people whose vote ends up with Labor on a 2PP basis, which includes quite a lot of people who don't vote for the Labor Party, but their preference gets there eventually. There's that cosmopolitan in a city group, and then there is this outer suburban group. And a lot of the time, the two get along great, but there are issues on which they clash. On this vote, those multicultural outer suburban voters were not the strongest no voters by any means, right? Like the strongest no voters were in the country. They were kind of average, middle-of-the-road electorates. Like I live in Parramatta. This seat voted no, but it's substantially more yes than the country. And there's a lot of Western Sydney, which is like that, where it's mildly no, whereas the country was quite emphatically no. That's a big difference compared to 2017. Um, It's very much like half of Labor's base was like, yes, we're on board with this. And the other half was ambivalent. You know, a bunch of these seats where some booths voted yes, some booths voted no. Overall, they mostly translated into slim no majorities. And then you have, you leave the cities. And then you're in, I'm going to say deep red because I've been using red for no in this referendum, but deep red territory. I did a linear regression last night on the results. And one thing that stood out actually was that the mortgage belt was heavily no. And uh, this was something that I certainly saw coming. I live in Fremantle. Around where I live, it was 75% yes. But any time I went out into the suburbs, which I was doing a lot, those vote yes signs just evaporated very quickly as you moved out from Fremantle. And it was clear that it was in suburbia that, you know, the referendum had been lost. I just think that they weren't engaged with it at all. They resented the fact that it was happening and that the government's focus was on this you know, at a time when mortgage rates were going through the roof. They hadn't really been thinking about it a great deal. They were ripe for picking for arguments that, look, you don't know what this is about. It represents a a, a failure of the priorities of the government and you should voice your contempt against it for that reason alone. And, uh, you know, I think if the Yes campaign had its time again, it needed to just do better among the demographic where normal elections are decided as well, to keep the issue front of mind somehow and, you know, not just cause the sort of not terribly politically engaged section of the mainstream Australian population that they should just passively fall the voting no on the basis that it's not broke, don't fix it, don't understand it, don't know. 
I saw the same trend in Sydney, MacArthur, where I've got family, where I grew up, very outer edge and includes suburbs that have very high mortgage rates. And I think it was about 65% no there. I think the correlation between mortgage paying, I think, tells you something. Whereas I doubt you saw that at the same-sex marriage survey, or if you did, it wouldn't have been in the same degree. I've spent a lot of time before this referendum looking at the history of referendums, right, because we we just haven't really engaged in this topic for a long time. And frankly, we didn't have a lot of data to base the voice referendum on. Other people did good work on analysing the polls. But this is the 12th referendum to go 6-0 for no. Uh, I think at the moment there's eight other referendums that have a bigger no vote. It's possible one or two of those could get overtaken if no does well in the remaining count, but that's kind of the range we're looking at, which is it's not just that it's a loss, but it's you know the bottom quarter of referendum results that we've had through, I've been saying through the 20th century, but now with the first referendum of the 21st. Referendums have greatly decreased in frequency because governments are of the view that you're on a hiding to nothing holding a referendum. It's generally been Labor that's been reformist with respect to the Constitution. So, you know, since Federation, I think it's, I I don't have the numbers here, but I imagine it's largely Labor governments who have put referendums forward. Yeah, more than half. And it's been pretty easy for the Liberal Party to score no's against the Labor governments who have put forward these referendums. You know, a lot of the time, the conservative opposition to referendum proposals has no doubt been sincerely felt. But I think in 1988 in particular, when the Hawke government had put four proposals up, John Howard correctly divined that people don't really care about the whatever it was. I think it was <laughs> was it the wasn't the nexus. It was four year terms they tried to introduce and the recognition of local government in the constitution and so there were four proposals very worthy things that had come up through a uh, constitutional convention process that the Hawke government had been running throughout the 80s and they said well you know these are the changes that we believe that the direction that we should head in with reform in terms of updating modernizing the constitution so the Hawke government said well you know let's proceed with this and, you know, John Howard, the opposition leader at the time, read the breeze and says, well, no one, the Joe public doesn't care whether local government's recognised in the constitution or not. There's going to be low engagement with this. It's going to be very easy for, to persuade people that none of this is broken, none of it needs to be fixed, and I will be able to inflict a humiliation on the government and score a short-term political win. And that, I suspect, was the worst set of yes results at any referendum that's, that's been held. And it was also the end of Labor governments having it in their DNA that when we're in government, we try to have referendums and get the constitution changed. But they have, this is the first Labor government referendum that's been held since then. The only referendum since then was the Republic referendum under John Howard. And then you had the Prime Minister of the day not supporting the proposal. I do wonder if... It has become harder to get a yes vote in referendums. There certainly has been a lot of the worst results have been since the 1980s. It could be that the quality of the proposals has been deteriorating, or rather not the quality of them, the electoral appeal of them. 
you know, you probably could persuade a voter if you were able to get him to pay attention long enough to get rid of the nexus, which, you know, means that the Senate has to be half the size of the House of Representatives and, and various other things. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, the, the loss of that appetite for constitutional reform that Labor used to have because they've seen it fail so many times and they think that there's no point in doing it. We just give ourselves a short-term political defeat in losing the referendum and hand a free kick to our opponents. Uh, on the other hand, though, it may be that civic engagement is not what it used to be, that the Constitution itself is less clearly understood than it once was and the, the issues involved, what a constitutional referendum is, I suspect that it's harder to get people to engage with these sorts of issues when a referendum rolls around than it was 50 years ago. When you look at the history of the ones that have succeeded, particularly in recent decades, they're usually about things that are already in the constitution that need tweaking. They're very much questions of mechanics. Uh, They're not questions of broad political principles. They get bipartisan support. So I think it's possible you could get something like that, but I don't think it's going to happen under a Labor government because I think it's it's always going to be too tempting, particularly for a coalition opposition, to oppose something that they might otherwise support. I think something like The Voice, the people pushing it, part of what they wanted was an emphatic endorsement and recognition of their principles. There was a practical element, but there was also a symbolic element that went beyond the practical of it. But ultimately, it founded on the fact that it is a practical change to a to an actual document. It wasn't like it's not a symbolic vote. Um, I probably we couldn't get Section 44 through. I think part of the problem as well is in the multipartisan system we have, bipartisanship is probably not enough. You know, I feel like the Greens or One Nation on their own could probably sink a referendum. I was sort of thinking a year ago when the polls were really good for the Indigenous voice that maybe the lesson about the weakening of the, the major party system is that maybe what that means is that the opposition to one major party is no longer enough to sink a referendum. That, you know, because the major parties only command the loyalty of, you know, less than a third of the voters now, that having a major party line up against the referendum is not the kiss of death for a referendum like it once was. But uh, I think that experience is probably belied that. That while the parties themselves don't, you know, command a vast army of loyal people who'll follow their lead, they're part of a broader ecosystem, in particular on the right. There's an online right-wing movement, a subculture there that was obviously, you know, bitterly opposed to the voice and sharing their memes with each other and all of the rest. There's the Murdoch media infrastructure. If you've got all that against you, even if there was bipartisanship, it probably would be very difficult to overcome. You don't have to be on board with the Liberal Party to support no, right? I think no had, obviously it had the progressive no element, but then there were relatively normal liberals campaigning for no, and then there were kind of far-right crackpots, and they can kind of all get on board the same ship. I do wonder if they had found a way 
to get people like Lydia Thorpe on board earlier. I think it would have been very hard to do. But I do think it fed. It wasn't just just into Price and Warren Mundine, but the sense of being like, oh, there are Aboriginal people on the left who don't support this referendum. I think probably the numbers were relatively small, but they were real. And I think it then fueled it amongst people who, you know, they didn't really agree with what Lydia Thorpe thinks, but it just plants a seed of doubt in their head as well. So I'm sure there's a bit of that. I mean, the Heartland Green seats very strongly voted yes, but I think it proliferates out. You know, I was talking about the tail seats. While the tail seats voted yes, the green seats voted yes substantially more heavily than the tail seats. So I think in the, you know, quasi-progressive sort of affluent seats that used to be safe liberal seats, there was an element of opposition there among, you know, affluent people that that wasn't there among the the sort of more bohemian classes of the the real hardcore inner city seats. So that was there. Regarding the point that you were just making... I don't think that Lydia Thorpe persuaded too many people on the left to vote, no. But she did add to the general sense of noise, which uh, fed into the the overarching no campaign talking point, which was division, that this is divisive, that it's, you know, it's causing arguments to start no one's united about it. Even the people who it presumes to represent are divided about it. That, you know, there's this fundamental effective buzzword, division. Not only the argument goes, does the voice divide us by establishing a class of person that's represented by this thing and the rest of society is not represented by this thing, but division is the whole the hallmark of the whole situation. The, the voting public are divided, the Indigenous community are divided, the left are divided. It was very easy in that environment to persuade people that this is all just very ugly and messy and let's just knock it on the head and move on to something else. Now, uh, you're in Western Australia. There's a three-hour time difference at the moment due to daylight savings between Southeastern Australia and Western Australia. The ABC called the results of the referendum just before 4.30pm in Western Australia. There would have been a lot of people still voting, a lot of people still out on booths. How do you think that was received by people in WA? What, What do you think people thought of that? It's the most striking sort of example of it I've ever observed because daylight saving makes a difference. You know, it's a three-hour time difference between WA and most of the eastern seaboard at the moment rather than just two. So if this had been held in winter, it wouldn't have been as big of an issue. And the result came through really, really quickly because it's not difficult to count a referendum. You're not hacking through large ballot papers. You are not doing two different votes, primary and two-party preferred. Very quickly it became apparent which way the wind was blowing. So as you say, you know, with 90 minutes to go, uh, WA was in this this situation. And uh, this issue emerges often in Canada. I think that they've got a lot of rules in place. Uh, They've got some anyway. Um, in some jurisdictions that reporting is not allowed to happen while some polling stations are still open. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yes. So uh, <laughs> I don't want us to do that as someone whose election night drama is the bread and butter of much of their professional life, but 
I have to admit that it could conceivably be worth looking at. I wonder if you could do things like like WA's polling booths could could open and close an hour earlier. You know, you could do seven to five, or like you could close the east coast half an hour later or something like you could do things like that to adjust to it a little bit i'm a notorious late riser from western australia that for me personally that would impose an hour long limit on my voting time that wouldn't happen if i was from the eastern states i don't know you know maybe that's worth considering it's sort of unknowable what effect it had did the news come through to people on their iphones while they were standing in queues at 4 30 p.m and they said stuff this i'm going home i think that's why probably there's a law in canada they don't have compulsory voting most countries don't so that lash isn't keeping you at the booth and making you fulfil your obligation whether you need to or not. So there's a lot of sensitivity that, you know, maybe in British Columbia people are going to go home and not bother to turn out if, you know, it's an hour before polls close, it's apparent that the election's done and dusted on the eastern seaboard. It will be interesting to see if there's any turnout differential for WA. I don't imagine that there will be, but... I don't know. Perhaps there will, and if there is, then we can hypothesise that that was a reason. How long do you think it'll be before you and I are covering another referendum, federal referendum? I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I might have said never. (laughs) So it it may be never, but it's going to be a long time. You know, I think after 20 years or so, probably as long as the last wait. So we're both going to be old men if it happens at all. Okay, so that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, William, for joining me. Great pleasure as always. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.